0: So uh, welcome to uh, everyone to this uh, second lecture in the, uh, this year's uh, Ralph Miliband programme of lectures on the theme of war and peace. I'm, I'm Ann Phillips. I'm from the LSE Government Department, and I'll be chairing this uh, this session. Uh, the, we had the uh, the first of the lectures in our war and peace series uh, last week with Kimberly Hutchins. Uh, our third lecture will be later this term on December the 10th, and uh, Shirley Williams is going to be in conversation with Mark Bostridge, uh, reflecting on the, the impact of the First World War on uh, her mother, Vera Britton, who, um, as I'm sure many of you know, was, was a, a leading um, feminist campaigner in the interwar years, and wrote this very, very powerful uh, autobiographical testament of youth, which reflected on the kind of the impact of the war on a very, in a sense, carefree young woman at the outbreak of the First World War, who then, one by one, saw all the men in her social circle, including her brother and fiancé, off to the war and, and killed, um, and herself uh, became, a, became a nurse. So, so that, that's our third event of the series, which is on the 10th of December. Um, Shirley Williams talking about um, Vera Brittain and the impact of the war uh, on her thinking and life. Uh, tonight we have the second uh, event in the series, which is uh, Robin Archer from the uh, LSE Department of Sociology. Uh, those of you who um, regularly come to the uh, Miliband lectures will uh, will know Robin as the uh, director of the Ralph Miliband programme and very much the, uh, the driving force behind our lecture series for the last few years, and particularly a driving force be- be- um, uh, behind this year's uh, series of lectures on war and peace, obviously timed to coincide with the centenary of the Great War, uh, but also, but particularly to allow us a chance to reflect on the particular ways in which thinking about war and peace um, have kind of worked through in radical uh, politics, I'm thinking. Um, I, I've heard various kind of, you know, tantalizing snippets about his. Uh, his current uh, research on the uh, um, the ways in which radicals responded to and were affected by the, uh, particularly the First World War. Uh, so I'm myself very much looking forward to uh, hearing uh, your lecture tonight on the theme of the war that was lost. So can you uh, just join me now in uh, welcoming Robin Archer to give uh, the second lecture in our War and Peace series?
1: Thank you very much, Anne, and thank you, everyone, for coming. I just want to start with a, a very simple observation. That is that at just the moment when the Great War began, another Great War was lost. I mean by that what activists often refer to as the war against war, the great struggle to prevent just that kind of military conflict from taking place. And here in Britain in these last weeks and the last few months we've been commemorating the centenary of that moment and of the catastrophe that followed in its wake and we're asked to remember the Great War Uh, we're told we should remember it to learn the lessons though I think lessons are frequently not really drawn indeed the war is frequently portrayed not as the outcome of a human decision making process at all but as some kind of a natural disaster, something like a bushfire or a great deluge. Um, Or if you look perhaps at your insurance policy, what they still call an act of God. And then we're asked to remember how people coped with this disaster which engulfed them. Well, in this lecture, I want to do something different. I want to start by remembering that though it failed the decision for war was challenged by a major movement seeking to stop the outbreak of that kind of military conflict. And then I want to turn, in the bulk of the lecture, to that decision itself. And in particular, I want to examine how those who supported the decision managed to prevail over their opponents, especially in Britain and the English-speaking countries where opposition was strongest. So that's what I propose to do. It's a two-part thing. The first part's much shorter than the second. And um, let me just proceed straight away with it. So let, let me begin by remembering the great movement against war that exercised millions of Europeans and others in the years before 1914. It was a movement composed of many strands. There were liberal internationalists, there were feminists, there were lots of Christian pacifists... But in the early 20th century, the labour movement was widely seen by both supporters and opponents as well as by fearful governments as far and away the most important force seeking to prevent war and to resist militarism. After the Austro-Hungarian Empire issued its ultimatum to Serbia on the 24th of July, Labor leaders around Europe engaged in a frantic round of efforts to try and stop the war from breaking out. The International Bureau of the Socialist International summoned all the top leaders of the main European socialist parties to an emergency meeting in Brussels. And there they denounced the war. This was on the 29th of July. And they called for an emergency congress, which they were going to hold just 10 days later, thinking that diplomacy would still be in play and they'd be able to put pressure on it And there they were going to decide on what final course of action to take. After this emergency meeting ended, they held a huge rally in Brussels. Thousands and thousands of Belgian workers met in the largest hall in Brussels. And there Jean Jaurès, the great French socialist leader, arrived on the stage with his arm around his counterpart from Germany, Hugo Haas of the German Social Democratic Party, and gave an impassioned speech. Peace. Well, similar stories can be told about all the belligerents on the eve of the war. The German case is especially important because it was the biggest and most powerful of the social democratic parties. What did they do? They immediately reacted to the Austrian ultimatum by denouncing the prospect of war, they organised huge demonstrations. On the 28th of July, there were 27 demonstrations, mass demonstrations, in Berlin alone. And the following day, 100,000 people marched at their behest down the Unter den Linden, the main concourse in Berlin. When it became clear that Germany would enter the war, even then the German Social Democratic Executive met for three days fretting about what to do. Should they vote for the war credits or should they not? In the end, they did, even though a number of major leaders like Hugo has continued to oppose it. Well, you can tell similar stories about France and Belgium and many other countries. Here in Britain, Labor was probably the slowest. It was the place where Labor was slowest to become alarmed. But here, too, there were enormous, um, there was an enormous reaction, denunciation at least 42 meetings up and down the United Kingdom, mass meetings, the biggest of which you can see on figure one of your handout. I thought you would like to take something away with you, so i you give him a handout. And there you'll see uh, that on the 2nd of August there was an enormous meeting in Trafalgar Square. Um, this is Keir Hardy speaking to it. It went on throughout the afternoon. It spilt out beyond Trafalgar Square and into the surrounding areas. It was called on two days' notice and in the afternoon it poured with rain. But it was an enormous, enormous meeting, and the press of the time saw it as the biggest meeting that had been held for some time. I don't think anyone has commemorated this meeting in recent uh, weeks. So in Britain, too, there was a tempestuous debate about war credits, and the leader of the Labor Party, Ramsay MacDonald, resigned from, as, as leader rather than having to um, pursue the majority position. So in all of these cases, there were clear denunciations of the move to war. There were large protest meetings and demonstrations. There were anguished debates about whether to give the finance governments needed to prosecute the war. And there were key leaders who maintained their dissent. And yet, despite their commitments to act collectively to prevent just such a conflict, in one country after another... Labor's opposition to war soon gave way to a kind of resigned patriotism once the war was declared. Now, there's a long and um, involved debate about why that is, but one part of the reason is certainly, and if you look at figure two here, was partly that the larger and stronger the Labor movement had become, the more it had at stake organisationally if it was threatened by government repression or by popular rejection. And as that figure helps to show, I think, it helps to explain why the the strongest labour movements, whether in an authoritarian environment like Germany or a democratic environment like Australia, the strongest labour movements became the most cautious. And it was only the weakest that maintained their opposition. So if you look right down the bottom of the table, you'll see Serbia. Amongst the European belligerents, only Serbia, a very small party, just two members of parliament, actually voted against the war credits in the parliament, even though Serbia was actually being attacked by by Austria. Um, And if you expand beyond into um, outside of Europe, only the US socialists, who were as a proportion even smaller... Um, actually continued their opposition as the war progressed. Well, the upshot of all this was that once the decision had been taken, opposition quickly fell away. But why were the proponents of war able to prevail over their opponents in the decision-making process itself? And why in particular was that possible in Britain? Well, this, this brings me to the major theme I want to explore in the rest of the lecture, the decision for war itself. Sorry about this squeaking every time I lean on it. It's sort of of amplified into the whole... Sit up straight. I'll have to sit up straight, but then the trouble is I have to be... here. So, look, let me start with this major theme. The starting point is is really the observation, which I think is striking to contemporary eyes, that the statements of key decision-makers on the eve of the war are replete with the language of honour. Now, a number of social scientists and historians have um, drawn attention to this. Uh, Avner Offer, in particular, in a rich and stimulating analysis about 20 years ago, uh, developed an argument around it and he drew on the earlier work of James Joel who, in an inaugural lecture here at the LSE in the 1960s, discussed this question. And his work, in turn, has been developed um, and sort of generalised by the political sociologist Michael Mann in his magnum opus, The Sources of Social Power. Well, Offer sets out three main characteristics of the European Honour Code. And um, if you have a look at figure three... I, I realise you don't have these I'm figures... If you have a look at figure three you'll you'll see you can look at that while I'm talking so the the first first of all questions of honour the first is the first characteristic questions of honour arise when an individual is threatened with a loss of reputation and hence of status and respect and the honour code presumes a, a dread of the ensuing shame secondly the Honour Code calls for an individual facing such a threat to demonstrate a willingness to engage in physical confrontation that risks major personal loss, up to and including death. And here you can think of a, a paradigm example at the level of individuals as you know, the willingness to challenge someone to a duel. I mean, this, this is the sort of idea. And thirdly, in so acting an individual must eschew calculations of costs and benefits or the balance of reasons. So the honour code is averse and, in fact, sharply juxtaposed to prudential behaviour. Well, taken together, the essence of the honour code, then, lies in the willingness to engage in uncalculating confrontation in order to avert a loss of reputation willingness to engage in uncalculating confrontation in order to, a, uh, to avert a loss of reputation. Now, I just want to quickly note three points, um, related points, about this honour code. The first is that honour is clearly a highly gendered concept. Uh, the historian Uta Freivert uh, draws attention to the fact that while both women and men can be bearers of honour, what constitutes a threat typically differs. And that it's only men who are called upon to engage in the confrontation that is required to defend the honour. So the relationship to it is different, even though both can be bearers. Secondly, the code clearly has aristocratic origins. Paradigmatically, it involves the reputation of high status individuals, nobles, and so on. And thirdly, and this is what's particularly important to what I'm going to argue today it can apply by analogy to nations or states. So here again, it's paradigmatically high-status states that are exercised by it. And it's particularly important to real or aspiring great powers. Well, Offa goes on to show how the Honour Code helps explain decisions taken in Germany, in Austria-Hungary, in France, even in Belgium... And given the enduring strength of feudal and military values in much of continental Europe, this essentially Weberian analysis has an obvious plausibility. In any case, it's not my intention to question it here. But what about the historically liberal English speaking countries? Does honour help to explain the decision for war there? That's the question that I want to address today. So I'm going to begin by talking about Britain and especially the critical position of radical liberals. Then I'm going to turn more briefly to the English-speaking New World and after that I want to offer some preliminary thoughts on why the language of honour was effective, whether it still plays a role a century later and then finally conclude by offering some tentative possible centennial lessons. So that's the agenda. I want to talk about Britain, English-speaking New World. Why was it effective? Is it still around a century later, and what can we learn from it? So then we um, go to the British case, well, you, I mean, you need to know a bit about background of British history. There's a Liberal government. You know, Labour's still a third party. It's Liberals versus Tories. Labour's just a small third party. With the ruling Liberal Party and the strong anti-militarist tradition within it, Britain was the most equivocal of the European great powers and it was the slowest to commit to entering the war. At the beginning of the crisis, more than half of the Cabinet backed the radical position that Britain should remain neutral. Let me just note, in case you don't know, that these are sort of normal terms for discussing the British Cabinet. There were the Liberal imperialists and the radical Liberals. It doesn't mean that they were kind of far off the edge of the spectrum. They were, you know, one faction out of the two factions in the Liberal Party. So more than half the Cabinet backed this radical Liberal position that they should remain neutral. And on the 1st of August... Remember, Britain joins the war on the 4th of August. On the 1st of August... The Cabinet decided not to send an expeditionary force to France. In Parliament, the majority of Liberal MPs were opposed to intervention, and the Prime Minister Asquith thought that three quarters of Liberal Party members were also opposed.
2: Only on the 2nd of
1: August did the Cabinet decide that a violation of Belgian neutrality would compel intervention, even though a few days earlier, on the 29th of July, they'd rejected that very same argument. So you can see it's going backwards and forwards. It's very finely balanced. Well, the next day, on the 3rd of August, the Foreign Secretary, Edward Gray, and you can see in the last figure in the thing there, our, another the dramatist personae, rose in Parliament to make the government's case for war. And in this speech, which was the main speech the government made to justify what it was proposing to do, the language of honour loomed large. Gray's argument was interlaced with observations about interests and he also argued both, I mean, how he made this argument, I don't know, he both said that there were no obligations on Britain to enter the war and that there were obligations on Britain to enter the war in the same speech. But the red thread that ran through the speech was an appeal to honour. (coughs) Excuse me. And I just want to quote a little bit here from... Um, ...how he ends it. "'If in a crisis like this we run away,' he said in concluding the speech, "'I doubt whether whatever material force we might have at the end, "'it would be of much value in the face of the respect we should have lost. "'Britain would,' he said, "'lose all respect "'and sacrifice its good name and reputation.'" Well, on the 4th of August, war was declared when Germany invaded Belgium. And two days later, the Prime Minister, Asquith, confirmed the centrality of honour in the decision for war. Speaking in Parliament, he said, I can only say that if we had dallied or temporised, we as a government should have covered ourselves with dishonour. What are we fighting for, he asked. The answer was first and foremost to fulfil an obligation not only of law but of honour which no self-respecting man could possibly have repudiated. Well, the leader of the opposition, the Conservative leader, Bona Law, spoke. He agreed. So did The Times, the dominant media of the day. And even the arguments of enduring opponents confirmed the centrality of honour to the decision. So Labor's leader, Ramsay MacDonald responding to Gray's speech on the 3rd of August, insisted that, and I'm quoting, if the nation's honour were in danger, we would be with him. But he continued, there has been no crime committed by statesmen of this character without those statesmen appealing to the nation's honour. We fought the Crimean War because of our honour. We rushed to South Africa because of our honour. The right honourable gentleman is appealing to us today because of our honour. And Keir Hardy, who's on the front of the handout, the veteran Labour MP, made the same point a bit more pithily. He said, honour is always the excuse. We shall look back in wonder at the flimsy reasoning. Well, how should we understand this British use of the language of honour? And what's its relationship to the European Honour Code, which I was discussing earlier? Well two answers have been suggested one is the answer offered by offer according to him the british use of honour was qualitatively different from the continental use he characterised honour in britain as more closely associated with prudence and the calculation of interests in contrast to the third characteristic it was more bourgeois and less feudal the code of the middle class merchant he says not the strutting officer The problem is that this overstates the significance of interest-based arguments in Britain and it understates the significance of those types of arguments in Germany and I don't think I'll try and elaborate on that here but you can get a feeling from it from what I've said so far. The other answer is the answer offered by Mann. He thinks that British use of honour was basically the same as in the rest of Europe The problem here is that it's not clear that British statesmen really were personally motivated by honour. The Foreign Secretary, Edward Grey, supported the alliance with France and Russia and had done so for many years. And he seems to have taken a personal decision in favour of the war about a week earlier, partly to stay on good terms with Russia and to avoid a threat to the colonial empire in India and partly to ensure friendly control of the English channel and to allow the prosecution of trade and naval supremacy. The surge in talk about honour, like the surge in talk about Belgian neutrality, emerged late, very late, and seems to have been aimed at outmanoeuvring recalcitrant cabinet members. What was really distinctive about the British use of honour language was the target audience, Gray's appeal was directed not at the enduring feudal inflections of the Tory mind, nor at the liberal imperialists, the faction that he himself belonged to, but at the radicals and the advanced liberals in his party who had long been the chief obstacle to his foreign policy and were now the chief obstacle to his proposed intervention. And the striking thing about it is that it worked, with remarkable frequency, erstwhile opponents, liberals and radicals, labour politicians and trade unionists, feminists and even pacifists, embraced the demands of honour and had a change of heart. In the Cabinet, Lloyd George was the potential opponent whom Asquith and Gray feared most. And yet by September he was declaring that fate had reminded Britons of the great peaks of honour we have forgotten. This was in a speech which was then published with the title Honour and Dishonour. The labour movement was caught by surprise and as we've seen, many unions had been organising protests against British involvement. But soon it too agreed that Britain was, quotes, fighting to maintain its honour, a position that was formalised in a manifesto committing labour to encourage recruitment into the army. And perhaps the most extraordinary turnabout, the Women's Social and Political Union, you know, the militant wing of the women's suffrage movement, rallied to the government. Emmeline Pankhurst, its dominant figure, called on every man to, quotes, go to battle like the knights of old, with absolute honour to his nation. And her organisation encouraged women to hand white feathers to those who didn't enlist. This was just weeks after the beginning of the war. Anguished reassessment, too, brought an end to many long standing peace organisations. The Quaker president of the Venerable Peace Society, for example, declared that avoiding war would have been dishonourable and discreditable. Similar quotes can be made for other organisations which then collapsed liberal intellectuals played a particularly important role as their arguments provided a template for many others. I want to dwell for a moment on one prime example, the Professor of Classical History at Oxford University, Gilbert Murray. Now, Murray was a very prominent public intellectual and a very prominent peace campaigner. He was so prominent that he was the model for a peace campaigner in George Bernard Shaw's play Major Barbara. I don't know if you know this play, but there's, there's the sort of paradigm peace campaigner, and, and that's that's him, that's Murray. Days before the outbreak, he joined with Graham Wallace, J. A. Hobson, and other anti-war intellectuals to form a neutrality committee, and their last ditch efforts to keep Britain out of the war appeared in the press on the third of August. Yet, after watching grey in Parliament, Murray went to Parliament, sat in the the public gallery and, and went to watch him. And after watching grey in Parliament, he almost immediately, within a day or two, became a leading liberal apologist for British intervention in the war. His new argument, his argument for the war, was set out in a widely circulated pamphlet, How Can War Ever Be Right?, And its its interest lies in the fact that he's addressing himself to his erstwhile peace oriented colleagues. Like Foreign Secretary Gray, Murray appeals to both honour and interest. And like Gray, albeit more explicitly, he argues that while assessments of interest are difficult and uncertain, the honour based argument is clear and decisive. Murray's argument features all the characteristics of the Honour Code. His examples make clear that, as with the first characteristic, it's threats to reputation and the attendant shame that are the principal motives for action. And his appeal to the second and the third elements of the Honour Code could hardly be clearer. His whole emphasis is on the rejection of cost-benefit calculations, the second characteristic, and the preparedness to risk death in physical confrontation, the third characteristic. Let me just give you a flavour of this pamphlet to show that this is so. The argument for peace fails, he says, because it judges the war as a profit and loss account, and it leaves out of sight the cardinal fact that in some causes it is better to fight and be broken than to yield peacefully. That sometimes the mere act of resisting to the death is itself a victory. When these questions arise, he says, there is no counting of costs, no balancing of good and evil. No balancing of good and evil. This is the very essence of honour. He concludes. Gosh, squeak, squeak, squeak. Well, let me turn now to the. The the second of these points I wanted to make um, and turn away from Britain and look at um, English speaking countries beyond uh, this country because it turns out that it was not just in Britain that honour based arguments were prevalent, they were also prevalent in the English speaking new world despite the fact that that English speaking new world was more egalitarian and democratic in its underlying political culture When the United States entered the war... Remember, the United States doesn't enter the war until much later, till April 1917. Uh, um, when they did enter the war, the language of honour loomed large there too. So the President, Woodrow Wilson, had just been re-elected the previous November on a he-kept-us-out-of-the-war ticket. It shows you this was a central thing. He, was, he got re-elected for keeping the US out of the war. And as in Britain, his administration carried the hopes of anti-war liberals and progressives. Yet he'd already made clear that nothing was more important than honour. Here's a quote of Wilson speaking in early 1916. They're entering the war in April 17. He's re-elected in November 16. This is early 1916. He says, "'You may count on my heart and resolution "'to keep you out of the war.' that you must be ready if it is necessary that I should maintain your honour. This is the only thing that a real man loves about himself. The real man believes that his honour is dearer than his life, and the nation's honour is dearer than the nation's comfort and the nation's peace and the nation's life itself. Well, the potency of this rallying cry is confirmed by the anxious efforts of socialists in the United States to preempt it. What is it all about? asked Alan Benson, the socialists' presidential candidate in 1916. Be careful now, he says. Don't answer too quickly. Don't say the flag has been insulted. Don't say the national honour has been impugned. These are old reasons, but we socialists are prepared to stake everything on the statement that they are not. True reasons. Well, it soon became clear that these anxieties were well-founded. And nowhere was it clearer than in the congressional debate about the decision as to whether to declare war. This debate took place on the 4th of April 1917. And the outcome was quite overwhelming. The House of Representatives voted by 373 to 50 to declare war and the Senate by 82 to six. But let's just consider the debate. Let's consider the debate in the Senate. 25 senators contributed. That's a lot. You know, think about the, the, the vote. Of these 25, 21 invoked honour. I've got a typical quote here, though one could choose many others. Here's Senator Hardwick. He argued that Americans want peace, but not peace at the price of having our national honour sullied, of permitting the very name America to become a term of scorn and contempt among men. As it happened, Senator Hardwick was from Georgia and you might think that this was a function of a peculiar sort of southern honour code which, you know, people have written about and there was a particular southern honour code. But in fact, three quarters of the senators that spoke appealing to honour were from outside of the South, And they included most of those who had previously been opposed to US involvement. One of those, for example, was Senator Kenyon of Iowa. He said, Peace is a passion with me. However, some things are worse than war. Dishonour, infinitely so. And went on to explain why he had changed his mind and was now proposing to support um, US involvement in the war. Well, honour-based arguments were prominent in Australia, too. Australia was in the middle of a federal election when the crisis broke, in July and August of 1914. And on the 31st of July, 1914, as every Australian school child knows, Andrew Fisher, the Labor leader, soon to be the Prime Minister, Labor won the election, offered to stand by Britain to our last man and our last shilling. But read the sentence in full. Just bear with me for a minute while I do. What Fisher said was that, I sincerely hope that international arbitration will avail before Europe is convulsed in the greatest war of any time. All, I'm sure, will regret the critical position existing at the present time and pray that a disastrous war may be averted. But should the worst happen, after everything has been done that honour will permit, after everything has been done that honour will permit, then Australians will stand behind our own to help and defend them to our last man and our last shilling. And on the 3rd of August 1914 he repeated, that our last man and our last shilling will be offered and supplied to the mother country in maintaining her honour and our honour. This is the Labour leader, soon to be Prime Minister, of Australia. Well, um, similar arguments can be found in the Labor press. Um, the you know, the socialist influenced Melbourne newspaper, The Labor Call, farewelled the first batch of um, Anzacs to the war with the following observation Labor abhors war, said the paper. It is an abominable relic of barbarism, an unspeakable anachronism for which it, Labor can find no sympathy. At the same time, the Labor Party is as human as any other body of men and it recognises that there is something even worse than war and that is dishonour and degradation. I'm sorry if I'm ladling on this a bit thick. but this is... Well, I want to turn now to the question of effectiveness. Why were these arguments from honour effective? Why did they work Well, an obvious starting point, I think, is the pervasiveness of the language of honour in Edwardian culture. It was inculcated by elite public schools whose old boys commanded the high officers of state. I mean, you think there's a lot of Etonians in the Cabinet now. Two-thirds of all the people that had foreign office attache-ships in the five years before the, the war started were from just that one school to two-thirds of the people at the junior level of the Foreign Office. It was inculcated, too, though, by organisations like the Boy Scouts and and other similar organisations, which attracted the phenomenal numbers, uh, possibly as many as 40% of adolescent boys belonged to these organisations in the pre-war years. And it was a central theme, too, of boys' own style magazines and popular children's books on model lives. Well, I think this is an important explanation. But note that it's an explanation which places the whole phenomenon sort of reassuringly in the past. It's a kind of last terrible trumpet blast of the long 19th century. But recall that we've seen that appeals to honour were also pervasive in the New World, despite the fact that there political culture was far more egalitarian and democratic. And this, I think, requires us to supplement our explanation with an understanding of the interaction between democratisation and honour. I don't want to dwell on this too long, but let me just try and quickly suggest what I have in mind by by way of an analogy, I guess. I mean, much as during the American Revolution, the United States democratised the monarchy, they sort of elected the monarch, that's the president, thereby re-entrenching that institution through the process of renewing it, so too the democratisation of honour gave it a new lease of life. By delinking it from the class indignities of a feudal order And by offering this appealing marker of high social status to all, or at least all, white men, the democratisation of honour enabled it to be re-entrenched on a far wider social basis. Well, whether in Edwardian Britain or in the more egalitarian New World, arguments from honour were also effective, and this is my third and final point on this effectiveness, because of the underlying conceptual structure of the argument. Honor-based arguments sweep away complexity. They set aside the need to reach conclusions on the basis of prudence, costs and benefits, or the balance of reasons. And their proponents were helpfully explicit about this. Gilbert Murray, for example, the Oxford professor I was talking about, makes it clear that when honour is invoked, it claims a position beyond interests, beyond politics, beyond morality, remember? Beyond good or evil, he said. Even beyond reason. In short, the invocation of honour serves as a kind of meta-argument that trumps all other reasons... I want to turn now to our own time and consider whether any of this um, analysis has a bearing on the world that that we inhabit. I think it's clear, to begin with, that the word honour is now well and truly out of fashion. I mean, you don't hear politicians making the case for war by appealing to that word. No-one uses that word um, when making these arguments. But these kinds of trumping arguments that I was just referring to and the Honour Code's concern with national reputation and respect, these, I think, are still very much with us. And I want to illustrate that and try to make it plausible with, with two quite different examples, one from the United States and one from here in Britain. A particularly striking example comes from the United States and what I have in mind is the popular embrace of the slogan These Colours Don't Run that emerged following the attacks of September the 11th, 2003. Everywhere you looked at that time, as it happens, I was in New York when that happened, and everywhere you looked after a period of weeks, this slogan could be found on bumper stickers, on commercial premises, on trucks, on public transport, on people's houses. These Colours Don't Run. The slogan was typically illustrated with a proudly flying stars and stripes, often accompanied by a sort of swooping eagle. Now, clearly, although it was formerly a pun, the central meaning invokes key elements of the honour code. These colours, of course, symbolise the nation, heavily freighted with a presumption of a demand for respect, as the flag so often is, especially in the United States. And don't run signals the willingness to confront and the determination not to concede ground to those who've challenged the United States' as standing. Indeed, implicitly, the slogan suggests the willingness to confront irrespective of the costs. You know, these colours don't run no matter what. That's that's the kind of sort of voce end to it. Well... The ability to tap into these kinds of sentiments and to satisfy the desire for a sort of respect-affirming act of hostility goes, I think, some way to explaining why the Bush administration was able to win support for the war in Iraq, an otherwise very incomprehensible thing. I mean, Iraq had nothing to do with with the, the attacks. If we run away, Gray had told MPs on the 3rd of August 1914, nothing will outweigh the respect that we should have lost. Nearly a century later, thousands of bumper stickers blared back, these colours don't run. The second example I wanted to um, allude to comes from here in the United Kingdom. I think there are also some similarities between Britain's decision to participate in the Great War and Britain's decision to participate in the Iraq War of 2003. There was widespread opposition, especially amongst the government's own supporters. There's the quiescent posture of the Cabinet with only two resignations in each case. And there's persistent concerns about secret diplomacy. Gray with France and Blair with the United States... And that that might have determined the outcome. But there's also evidence of the continuing salience of honour-style appeals. Prime Minister Blair's speech in the House of Commons on the 18th of March 2003 covered issues of security, of international law and of morality, but a central claim was that Britain had to meet what he called "a test." Was it prepared to act to preserve its, and he somewhat tendentiously claimed the United Nations, reputation? Was it prepared to act to protect its reputation? He returned to this point repeatedly and he reiterated it at the end. What will other states think of us if we retreat now, he said, and turn away at the point of reckoning? And he concluded, to debate but never to act is the worst course imaginable. It would, he later told the BBC, have left Britain and its allies humiliated. So I want to suggest that this type of reasoning, if not the word that names this reasoning, is still a force in the politics that we have today. And now I just finally want to turn to the question of centennial lessons. Are there any that we can draw Um, With the exception of Australia, in which I take a special interest, Britain is spending more on the centenary than any other country in the world. And yet, the possibility that the whole appalling catastrophe might have been avoided is scarcely mentioned. What centennial lessons should we draw from the role of honour in the onset of that catastrophe and of other catastrophic uh, conflicts in which countries like this have been involved. Well, one lesson might be that we should try to reshape the concept of honour. Consider the second characteristic on on the handout that I mentioned, the one that says that the honour code requires a willingness to engage in physical confrontation that risks major personal loss, up to and including death. In a fascinating correspondence with Gilbert Murray, the philosopher Bertrand Russell, who was a major player in the the anti-conscription movement, insisted that conscientious objectors suffered at least as much as recruits. Not only did they face ostracism from family and friends, the loss of work and income and jail and severe punishment, but they also risked execution and death. The fundamental difference between resistors and recruits, said Russell, was not the preparedness to risk death, it was the preparedness to inflict it. Now, though he thought that this was morally wrong-headed, Murray acknowledged that this kind of Tolstoyan stance was compatible with what he understood by the concept of honour. Efforts to reinterpret the concept of honour were made during the Great War, but I think to little effect. But a century later, we can draw on additional, more successful examples. Examples that provide a powerful boost to these efforts. I'm thinking, for example, of those movements associated with Gandhi, Or King, or in a different way, Vaclav Havel. Examples of a dissident rather than a warrior concept of honour. So that might be one lesson we could draw. But perhaps there's a still deeper lesson that we should at least consider. Perhaps we should set aside the notion of honour altogether. Perhaps we should reject its embrace of uncalculating confrontation when reputation and respect are at stake. And perhaps we should repudiate its demand for the relegation of reason. And here, I want to suggest, perhaps we intellectuals have our own small role to play and our own small responsibility to acknowledge. Given the propensity of so many amongst us now, as in the period before the First World War, the propensity to adopt a a hostile or dismissive attitude, an everything-is-power attitude towards human reason. Well, during the First World War, the popular and the official resonance of honour can be seen everywhere. It can be seen on the dead man's penny, which every British family got if a soldier died, for freedom and honour read the inscription and it can be seen on private gravestones and official memorials across the English speaking world. One of them that I saw recently um, in Salisbury Cathedral read, he gave his earthly life to such matter as he set great store by, the honour of his country and his home. Like countless others, his parents had reached for the language of honour to make sense of the fate of their 19-year-old boy. Honour has come back, as a king to earth, so wrote Rupert Brooke, the doyen of the young British war poets in 1914. And I want to end by suggesting that perhaps that reign should end. Thank you very much.
0: Uh, thank you very much indeed for that, Robin. I obviously, I'm going to open it up for questions, but can I just start by asking one myself? Because it's which is prompted both by you saying at the end that we should um, be very wary of the relegation of reason, but also your your puzzle at the beginning about why honour, with all of its aristocratic overtones, could have had so much appeal to the labour movement and social democratic parties. And I, I did just wonder if. If, if part, of the, part of the explanation for that is the, um, the aspect of the honour code that's about a critique of, of cost-benefit analysis, which seems to me uh, there's, it has a certain kind of resonance with some of the ways in which the labour movement would criticise capitalism—the idea of, you know, subjecting everything to a kind of, like, in a sense, a, a sort of, a, you know, a, a weighing up of kind of costs and benefits. And I just wondered if that might be in any way part of of why, un, unexpectedly, the labour movement adopted also this language of
1: honour. Mm. Well, I mean, there's two currents running through labour movement critique of capitalism. There's a romantic current, yeah. which would get resonance in the way that you describe, and there's a more rationalistic current, comes out of the Marxian tradition, that says, uh, you know, it's not in the interest of workers that this should be the system prevailing I think the latter is the dominant current in the German social democratic tradition which is the dominant current at the time before the first world war but the romantic current is, is, is certainly there and that helps to facilitate the um, blurring of that uh, tradition into a kind of far right tradition in the interwar period um, so it, it is present but yeah. I
0: don't think it's, it's dominant. Not dominant yeah. OK, so I've had my chance. Uh, over, over to you. Uh, do we have, uh, yes, I mean, I, I know it, it's, it seems as though you shouldn't need a microphone, but actually the acoustics here are not brilliant, so uh, it's, if you could wait. Um, so uh, at the front here, first, just, if you can just say who you are before you speak. And... Hello, doctor.
3: I'm Vincent. I'm just a private citizen. Figure number two from your handout.
0: With, where would uh,
3: countries like Canada and South Africa be? Would they so be uh, more two. socialist or more liberal?
1: I'm just seeing which is figure two. Well, I'm sorry, even though it's my own hand. Ah, Canada's not on the list because there is no Labour Party in Canada. Uh, they, they first run in 1917, so it's after the war starts. Indeed, they, they, they start because of the hostility to conscription and they're not elected until 1920, so that's why, that's why they're not there. Um, South Africa, also, I mean, th- th- there's no, there's no such party at that time. South Africa is a very interesting case for conscription, though, because like Ireland, it's it's not prosecuting conscription for fear of revolt, basically. So, in the, in the
4: middle Cavanti the... uh, Mitchell, City University of New York. It may be the case that anti-war activists uh, were so vulnerable to this honor, this honor argument uh, because in looking at progressive liberalism, or liberal progressivism I should say, they found a failure to deal with governing through war, that liberal progressivism itself as an ideology has yet to sufficiently answer the question of how will we deal with war other than anti-war? Uh, Do you agree that this could have been the case? And uh, if you don't, what are the alternatives that liberal progressivism does provide other than don't go to war?
1: I mean, I think the way to answer that question is first to answer it in its general mode and secondly to answer it with respect to the English-speaking world. So in in, in the general mode, the the dominant argument was that there should be some form of international arbitration. And it's that impulse that led to the initiative to establish the League of Nations after the First World War, even though that then failed. And there are arguments then about what that form should take, you know, which international relations experts still have today. So that, that, I think, is the dominant argument that the sort of liberal internationalists and progressives are, are pursuing. But in the English-speaking world, there's the added issue that no-one's actually attacking Britain. No-one's attacking the United States. No one's attacking Canada or Australia. So the argument to get involved has to be an argument that there's some principle that has to be defended and there's an appeal to what we would now call sort of liberal interventionism. Um, and it's, it's in that context that these arguments are, are then made. Now, I mean, I don't... I shouldn't talk at great length about it, but I think the problem is that the, uh, the argument about Belgian neutrality which starts off as a dominant argument, doesn't have wide resonance in the population. People think, well, why should we go and deal with that? But the argument that your honour is at stake and somehow your wife and your children's honour might be at stake, that has much wider resonance. And so that argument is then sort of used to draw in a wider group. uh,
0: Right at the back, please. (coughs) Behind the (laughs) pillar.
4: Thank you. I'm I'm a survivor of 9-11, and obviously from the United States. Um, And I just wanted to share that um, I guess the the pitch of honor I can understand and I can agree with what you're saying would like to agree. But in reality, when you go through an incident and you're attacked in the way that we were, what was the driving force was anger— But it was anger, uh, I would say, with uh, no perspective of uh, you know course of action that one could. Everyone just felt completely helpless in not being able to do something. Government had a role, I felt, in either instigating, or leading, or ameliorating, or explaining. And um, much of what occurred in the United States uh, in my opinion, being from where where I come from uh, really was economically led and I don't know if probably some people in this room would disagree, but honor was just not in the conversation, not in the way that you have described it today. I would love to say that it was, but I'm speaking from having walked off the stage, so to speak. And I didn't feel any of that when I was going through it.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, want to say that this honour argument was, you know, the be-all and end-all of the explanation of what happened in the United States after the attacks of September the 11th. I was simply observing that there is a component of that response that does resonate in this way. And, I mean, clearly you have, um, you know, major personal experience of the thing. I mean, I wasn't in that thing, but I was in New York at that time and, and experienced it in that way. And what struck me most strikingly about it was how the meaning of the American flag changed in the course of a few weeks. I had the feeling that when the flag... That the flag went up everywhere, on fire stations and on blocks of buildings, everywhere... And at first it seemed to me that that was a kind of statement of we're in this together and we're standing with those people who've been attacked. But after a few weeks passed, it seemed to me anyway that it became connected with a much more hostile and outward-looking and aggressive type of um, posture. And it's at that time that this slogan that I was talking about started to become widespread. I mean, not ubiquitous, but widespread. And... You know, my my feeling about it is, though, though I'm no psychologist, is that it may also be connected to a kind of psychological response where first you're shocked and then you become more aggressive. But it it seems to me that it also does resonate with this argument that I was saying. So I, I certainly don't want to say that, you know, the whole... I mean, we could enter into a whole discussion about why the United States went to war in Iraq. But this seemed to me to be an example of how that kind of appeal was still playing a role, not from the official level, but sort of demotically from the bottom up. What, what, role, could play in your mind? what role could the government have played differently? Yeah, it's hard
4: to hear. You. I'm sorry.
0: Yes, perhaps. Yeah. We,
4: we were so vulnerable as individuals that we could have gone either way. But the government came out, like you said, with the, you know, these colors don't run. They came out with different symbols. Uh, People were desperately looking to be able to play a role in something. And that was was that energy. In fact, I sat where we were giving blood. And, of course, none of us knew at the time that none of that blood could be used uh, because there were no victims. Uh, that could get that could use the blood so but we did it anyways and we stood for hours just because that was all we could do what could government have done differently and what lessons could we have you know apply perhaps from what we've you know what you've spoken about today that should have or could have been done differently that would have had a different effect but we were at, at 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 the fork of the road we could have gone left or right and and it just seemed like we leaned in that direction of gravity uh, you know, could it have gone an anti-gravity approach? If that makes any sense. Sorry to take so much time on this, yeah. but
0: and, and just just so you don't come all the way back, the next speaker is just behind you. There. Well, I mean, I won't I
1: won't say a lot about that because I do think in in you know it, it takes us down a slightly different path. But I just do want to make clear that I'm not suggesting that the government endorsed the slogan. These colours don't run. To me, it's an example of how the democratization of the honor code is present without the language of honour itself being present. And I was simply suggesting that it was one of the resources that was available to the government when, later, it chose to have a war with Iraq, a country which had nothing to do with the attacks. That's, that was my claim.
2: Uh, James, Professor James Woodhouse and Dr Archer, I very much enjoyed uh, your talk. I didn't get your hand out, but I uh, uh, still love the talk. Um, <clears throat> I wondered if you'd... uh, It's a bit of a tall order, but I wondered if you'd try to relate your analysis of the origins of the the volt fast around the First World War to three broad uh, explanations of its origins or uh, the origins of that volt fast. One would be the orthodox Leninist analysis, which moves from the labor aristocracy to the trade union bureaucracy to the labor movement having a leaders, having an opportunist and a material interest in the preservation of imperialism. Whatever we think about that analysis, it was quite influential at the time. The second one is a much more recent one by Professor Frank Ferredi, which is that the uh, First World War was very much around a struggle for meaning, That meaning had been, a sense of meaning had been lost prior to it, And that not just the Labour movement, but nearly all intellectuals of the period signed up for it, hoping to find meaning in the war, a hope that was actually frustrated by the war, because they didn't find it. But they felt that 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 was necessary to pursue that goal, um, because they lost a sense of meaning. And the third one, perhaps related a little bit to the second, which is (coughs) one I've tried to work around, is to what extent was the acceleration of industrial life and of technology and also uh, the way in which management changed and many other things at a material level, the development of the railways and so on, was that bound (coughs) up was that bound up with uh, a feeling of hysteria and that the old social norms and rules and governments could not go on in the old way so you have this sort of explosive Change on the factory floor, but also in <coughs> society, where you move, as you eloquently described, from one position to another, kind of just uh, in a sort of seizure, really, that isn't just technologically based, but has some relationship to that. The reason I ask that, just to conclude, you've been very patient, is I think our colleague from <coughs> the United States points to something which is, and you, you, your own remarks about governments and so on r- confirm this. Uh, the the U.S. government not being a big repository for honor, I would have said that uh, what America in the First World War was all about was an ascending imperial power, whereas today we face a declining imperial power. And therefore, the explanation of anger that you, sir, adduced, seems to me is a quite different phenomenon from... And it was also attacked. You made this point unlike what happened in the First World War. So it seems to me that we have to be careful not to believe there's a sort of timeless appeal to honor in all eras, I'm sure you'd agree with that. The status of the US was different, the mood was different after 9-11. Um, would you care to comment on, uh, on that?
1: I'd be happy to comment on that. Um, Let me just say a few... I mean, you started with three points about the Leninist argument about sort of imperialist interests. I think the trouble with that argument is that there were different belligerents that had different relationships to those imperial interests, and yet in all of them, on the part of labour movements, there's this change from clear hostility to war right up to its eve to embracing it afterwards. And let me just note, by the way, in passing, that the Bolsheviks in Russia did not vote against war credits. They abstained. Only the Serbians, even though they were attacked, actually voted against them. So that's about that. On the point about the struggle for meaning, I think that is more pertinent to understanding the response of intellectuals to this situation than understanding the response of labour movements. And I think the difficulty is that This meaning problem is not something that suddenly emerges as the war breaks out. It's becoming apparent over time and it's expressing itself in extraordinary cultural phenomenon like the futurists in Italy and Marinetti and all these codgers. But the labour movement at that time is not part of that. The labour movement is absolutely invested and never more so than in the the pursuit of uh, hostility towards military adventures and the maintenance of peace. And when the international socialist movement meets, it's the top item on their agenda to pursue that. Now, they don't really agree exactly how to do it and they fail in the end, but to say that they are sort of vexed by a lack of meaning when that's what they're interested in, I think that's not quite right, though I think it is real for intellectuals. And on the, the last point about the sort of uh, acceleration of conflict in the, in, in the changing society... Um, I'm not sure that it exactly answers what you said, but it's certainly true of Britain that in the period before the war there are three enormous conflicts brewing. One is about women's suffrage, one is industrial, as you mentioned, and one is about Irish nationalism. And of those three, I think it's the last which is most vexing the government and is the most plausible candidate for making an argument about why government has a particular position. Now, it's not the place to go into it at great length, But there's good historical documentation to show that people who were opposed to home rule for Ireland, which was essential for the ongoing government, the Liberals depended on the Irish nationalists to remain in power, this home rule argument was being opposed by people in and around the military and though this is not the main argument, some of them did see that conflict on the continent would Bring a halt to the Home Rule issue for the time being because there wouldn't be the military resources to impose it against the will of Protestants in in Ireland. So I think of those three conflicts, it was less the strikes and more the Irish issue, at least in the British case, which was important.
0: Okay, so I've got one here and then over there. Yes.
5: Thank you. Professor Makinson from LSE. Uh, I I too would like to thank you for an absolutely fascinating uh, presentation but I do have some methodological problems you focused on public discourse in countries which went to war I think we also need to consider very carefully and a complete analysis would have to take them into account the private and, uh, at least at the time, secret discourse that must have been taking place in the innermost corridors of power between the top leaders of the countries concerned and look at the kind of language and reason, uh, reasons given in those contexts. They may very well be quite different from what was required for then presenting uh, positions to the grand public. I think also one needs to look not only at the countries that did go to war, but neighbouring countries which by their geographic position would be affected by such a European war, world war, but nevertheless did not go to war. And there were, uh, there were such countries in Europe. One would need to ask, was there public debate in those countries and what kinds of considerations were appealed to? I would add to that that to talk so much of honour may perhaps be <coughs> superficial. We may try to educate people to conceive the notion of honour in a different way but we are after all human beings and we are members of a gregarious species which forms packs and when it feels itself threatened reacts as a pack it may do this, it's also an articulate species and it will speak in terms of honor or of reputation or of faith or of our ancestors, or of our destiny, or whatever kind of ideological support happens to be strong at the time. But you can can strip one of those concepts of its force without stripping the biological drive that lies underneath it and which will inevitably manifest itself in other concepts.
1: OK, well, let's, uh, that's, there's a large number of interesting issues there. Let, let me take the main point you made at the beginning and the main point you made at the end. I think it's right what you say, that one needs to look at what was happening in the corridors of power in order to understand the outcome. And I, don't want what, I don't want it to be thought that what I'm saying is that this honour argument is the answer to why the war took place. Why do we need to look in the corridors of power? Because as I said in the talk... The motives of people like Foreign Secretary Gray were not based on honour. And indeed, if you look at the documents carefully, you find that the honour argument is introduced in around the 1st of August. It's introduced by the French ambassador to convince the permanent head of the Foreign Office, who uses it to give an argument to Gray, who takes it to the Cabinet on the 2nd of August. They take it to Parliament on the 3rd and take it to the people from there. So certainly there are other arguments that are central to understanding what's happening in the corridors of power. But the problem for the people in the corridors of power is that the Cabinet is in majority opposed to intervention. And so the argument that I was making in the British case is focused on that point. On the 27th of July, there are five or possibly eight of the 19 Cabinet members who are in favour of intervening in the war. By the, by the 2nd of August, a majority of them have been convinced that they have to, even though four of them resign, a fact that also has not been widely discussed. It's the only place where people actually resign. So that's the role that honour's playing. It's not, it's not deciding Gray's position. It's not what's going in the innermost corridors of power, but it's part of the strategy that's used by Gray To win sufficient of the cabinet around and then later, as I answered in the earlier question, to appeal more broadly to the public. Now on the last point more briefly, I mean you make a a very large argument about the bases of human nature and so on. And I, I don't feel I should enter into that fully. But I just want to make the point that Britain is not threatened in August 1914. So your your argument that, you know, we're in groups and when we're threatened we react in a certain way, that might help to explain why Belgium reacts in the way it does. It might help to explain why Serbia does. It might help to explain why France does. It can't explain why Britain does. Still less can it explain why Australia does or the United States does. They're not threatened. They are choosing to get involved on other grounds. And so that argument, at least in those cases, must have limits.
0: So I don't want to well, you, yeah.
2: Could you just wait, wait for the mic? Yeah. Thanks. Thank you very much for stimulating our talk. What Woodrow Wilson, I would ask you a question. He, when he declared war, uh, uh, unlike the later war where Hitler declared war, but uh, Woodrow Wilson declared war on Imperial Germany. If I'm right, he developed well the 14 points which became influential in international diplomacy open mm. covenants, open arrived at and other points, I can't think of all of them, but that might have stayed a, a, a philosophical approach to a whole approach to international relations behaviour. Could you say something about whether well, that was a progressive thing in terms of the overall career of Woodrow in the First World War? Woodrow's on the 14 points.
1: Hmm. Well, I mean, the 14 points come after the United States has entered the war, and it's an attempt by Wilson to... Explain to his liberal and progressive supporters why they should be supporting him. And it's a, it's a way of sort of wrapping the war in some of the um, values that mobilise those people. Um, as to what happens as a result of his pursuit of that, well, that's a much, much larger issue. I mean, was it, 100 years later, a good thing that the Habsburg Empire was broken up? You know, I mean, it's all been put back together within the European Union now, so it's a, sort of a bit of a, a moot point. And in the middle, there's been umpteen wars and conflicts and irredentist movements and so on. At the time, it was largely thought that uh, the borders of nations and the borders of states should cohere by liberal progressives, so they, at that time, were in favour of it.
0: Yes. Uh, I'm sorry. Again, it's best to wait for the mic.
3: Hello. I'm still not really sure about the failure of uh, all the... I
0: think you need to put the mic a bit closer to your mouth, maybe. I'm still not sure
3: about the failure of the anti-war movements. Everything I've read about it gives the word patriotism and the strength of that. And I think there were were divisions. I was reading just before I came here, Rosa Luxemburg, voting against a strike in all all nations. And can you say anything about the proposal for the strike and why why it failed, the general strike in all countries? I know Mm. the French socialist leader was murdered. Mm. was there a little bit of uh, the war might be an opportunity for proletarian revolution? I'm not sure. Uh,
1: no, no. Well, I mean, that's, that, is, that is an absolute... I mean, you know, when I said earlier that the issue of maintaining peace was central to the socialist international, the central issue which they had failed to settle was under what conditions would they jointly urge a strike on their members in different countries... In order to stop a war, and uh, there was a, a resolution called the Hardy Valent resolution. Valent was a, so, a French socialist. Hardy was Keir Hardy on the front of the handout, and they were in favour of this resolution, and it had been postponed to this forthcoming congress to settle what should happen about it. Jean Jaurès, who was executed, who was killed by a sort of uh, nationalist youth. His position was that this would only work if it happened before the outbreak of a war. He thought that once a war started, it would not be possible. And that proved to be the case. And it proved to be the case in part because the citizenry was prepared to rally to the war, at least initially. But, and we mustn't forget this, in part because in much of continental Europe and then later on also in the liberal English-speaking world, there was heavy repression of people that were opposed to this course of action. So the German Social Democrats, the one thing we know about them from the textbooks is that they voted for the war credits and betrayed the international. But they fretted a lot about it and in the course of fretting they assumed that they would be repressed. So in in these three days they were meeting deciding what to do, the very first thing they did was to send their president and treasurer to Zurich with some resources because they assumed that as it happened under Bismarck their organisation would be repressed. And the same thing was in, in, in Austria and in, in other places that had a more authoritarian complexion. So this mix of fear of popular support for the war and fear of government repression led Labor and socialist movements, especially large ones, to be um, coy about over, over-enthusiastic responses after the thing had started. Now, whether that was the right thing to do You know, that's a larger question. But let's look at the American case as a pointer of what might have happened had they done it. In the United States, which, after all, by the standards of Germany and Austria, was a far more liberal country, the Socialist Party, which stuck by its anti-war position after the war was launched, was ruthlessly suppressed and basically never recovered. So one might imagine that in more autocratic Germany and Austria, something similar.
0: Uh, so we have uh, one, one here. Yes. By the, way, by the window, <coughs> Andrew Keir. Quick. Um, just wonder how enduring was the reference to honour uh, to continue with the war once it had started. And on a, Just on your recent point, it seems that the country, the big countries with big unions, were also in repressive countries. So was that a factor in the fact that the Uh, big unions effectively went along with the the wars.
1: Um, So so on the first point about how long was the honour rhetoric um, present, I think it remained central to official rhetoric throughout the war. I mean, this, this dead man's penny that every family of a dead soldier got is emblematic of that. But I think it played an especially important role in Britain In the first year and a half, because in the first year and a half, you have to remember there was unlike in all the other belligerents, there was no conscription in Britain, so they had to they had to get people to be convinced that they should join up, and this language of honour, especially connected to uh, putative um, outrages against women and children in Belgium, was part of the propaganda, and was also to a certain extent the reality, but part of the propaganda. Um, that was used to do that. On the point about the big unions and the big uh, socialist parties being repressive, uh, that's not quite true because note at the top of the table here there's Australia, which I'm always pleased to talk about. I mean, the the strongest Labor Party in the world was in Australia. It came to government in September 1914, and that, of course, was in the English tradition. It It had a liberal political order... And there, I think you can see that the, the weight of these two things being different. I mean, for the Germans, repression was far more at the top of their mind. For the Australian Labor Party, it was, are we going to be outmaneuvered by the opposition who are going to sort of latch onto this, you know, to say that we're not patriotic enough and we're, you know, we're a seat away from winning power. You know, let's just close that down and say, last man and last shilling. Sorry. I... <laughs>
0: Uh, so I think this will probably be our, our last question uh, in the middle there. Thank you. And he didn't succeed. Um, also, the uh, the initial response from recruit uh, for recruitment. I think it was around something like 40,000. And it's progressively dropped off uh, to below
5: 3,000
0: by 1917. Um, A lot of this, doesn't this have a lot to do with the trade union movement? um, Who were very powerful in, let's
5: say, that conscription issue.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, that gives me the opportunity to just briefly say something that I'm very interested in, which is that there's really two waves of opposition in the English-speaking world to the war. There's the first wave, which we've been talking about tonight, which fails on the eve of the war. But there is a second wave, because in those English-speaking countries there is no conscription, and the second wave takes the form of opposition to conscription. And unlike in the first wave, there's very variable outcomes... In some countries, in the United States, for example, it's introduced almost immediately. In Britain, it's only introduced after lengthy angsting and struggles. And as you rightly point out, in the Australian case, uniquely, it's never introduced at all because the Prime Minister, Billy Hughes, is forced by his colleagues in the Labor Party and the trade unions to hold a referendum... And in the referendum, the population, despite being in the middle of the war with all the war rhetoric, vote narrowly to oppose conscription, and so it's never introduced. So there is a whole second story that one could tell, but I think that's probably a story for another day. day. Mm -hmm. day,
0: Well, I I think uh, I mean that's been I mean for me sort of a fascinating evening of sort of both both trying to get to grips with the historical Mm -hmm. events, but also thinking through some of the contemporary implications. So can you now join me in in thanking Robin Archer for